want a fascinating discussion coming your way right now because as activism goes, John Prendergast has been wholly committed to it for most of his life. Human rights has been John's focus, and in Africa in particular, being part of peace processes in, in Burundi, in Sudan, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, as well as helping to broker and end war uh, in Ethiopia, uh, in between Ethiopia and Eritrea. John's efforts have led to him receiving several awards, uh, too many to list right now, but one in particular from the US State Department for his distinguished service. Latterly, and alongside some very familiar names like George Clooney and Brad Pitt, uh, John has been part of The Century, something he co-founded, which is an investigative and policy team that aims to follow trails of dirty money to uncover those who are behind nefarious activities. And I'm really pleased to say that John joins me now at Gold's house from his home in the Hudson River Valley in uh, upstate New York. John, it's great to see you. Thank you, Matt, so much for having me. John, so much of your your life committed to um, activism, committed to improving human rights for people in Africa in particular. Why? Where did the drive come from to, to embark on that quest? Well, I, I think, you know, it's a, it's a great question for everybody who, who is involved in any kind of issue that, that makes their heart beat a little faster. You know, I, when I was a young guy, I thought I was going to be working with uh, kids in, in America in the, in, the, in the juvenile justice system, you know. And uh, one night I saw some images of a famine that was actually unfolding in Ethiopia that later sparked the live aid and we are the world and all that, you know, so it was a, a year before that. And it, it hit me so hard that people could suffer on such an operatic scale, just this massive million people dying of hunger. I mean, it just blew my mind, my 21 year old mind. And I felt compelled to go uh, and see for myself, had enough money for a one-way ticket and went. And so, you know, as with all of these things, when you take a chance on something and go outside of your comfort zone, you open a door and then there's like 10 doors that you didn't know existed. And you like just, you know, and so one thing leads to another. And eventually I settle personally on the fundamental nature of sort of human rights violations as the issue that I would focus on as the core of my own work. Um, and, uh, that's so that, you know, it just is an evolution an endless evolution where you just sort of stay open to the possibilities and then you see, okay, this is where I can potentially make an impact maybe. And, uh, and you, and you grab it and you try to try to make the difference there. Ethiopia is a great starting point. I'm an ex journalist and I remember the 84 famine and the reporting of that famine in the UK. And it certainly made me think this is something I want to go into. I also went to Ethiopia later on in my career and reported on a, on, a, on a later famine. And we can get onto that in a second, because the point I want to talk to you about is the difference between seeing things on screen or online, as people do now, and seeing them with your own eyes, which makes you realize just, well, just realize it, I suppose, is, is, is what I'm looking for. Is that the bit that made you think I have to do something, just witnessing it, experiencing it yourself? One of my heroes in the world is a guy who started this thing called the Equal Justice Initiative, Brian Stevenson. And his mantra is all about being proximate to the issues, to the causes that you care about. You know, get out 
and go to the places, go meet people and see it for yourself and interact humbly uh, and, 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 and learn. And I mean, once I was in these environments and realized that, well, actually I could spend my life as an aid worker or somebody who's collecting data or whatever, but that I was an, as an American, I have a chance to make a difference back home in the United States on our policies, which have such a tremendous impact uh, uh, on, on so many of these countries on many different levels. And that I've over time learned my best contribution would actually be uh, back in the US working to try to change my own government's policies so that they weren't so exploitative, they weren't so uh, uh, self-interested that there actually wasn't a, a, a partnership with these African countries, a way to support people's uh, best uh, and, and, and countries' best paths to development. And so it took a long time to learn these things, but it was because of being there and learning on the ground from people who lived it, you know, their entire lives, to realize that I had a different path that I had to take uh, uh, than one than what I had originally thought was going to be where I was ending up. When people haven't been proximate, and I think that's a fascinating way of putting it, how do you then sell the idea to them that something needs to be done? When that, but they're feeling it by proxy. How do you how do you overcome that distance for a lot of people who haven't? been able to go to these places that you've been to? Well, I think it's, you know, and you guys know a lot about this. I think it's telling stories. I think it's just giving people a window into a place or a type, a person and their life and their experiences. And so that you insert your listener, your reader uh, into, uh, into that place. And once they feel it and see it for themselves and hear it, um, they might, the, the compassion, the empathy, the, the, the ability to feel some level of solidarity kicks in for some, not everyone, but certainly the heart, you know, you can quote statistics all day. This place is, you know, the worst country in the world for the development or for education or for health. Mm -hmm. But if you tell about one person and what they are going through, what they're experiencing and why, you know, I think there's just, just a lot better chance that the listener or the reader or the watcher is going to say, you know, I'd like to try to do something about that, especially if there's a path for them to actually get involved. And in experiencing different cultures, different people, I'm, I'm going to guess that the universal experiences are the ones that come out. You recognize instantly how we are all connected. There are similar threads that run through all of us in terms of our experiences, wherever we happen to be in the world. And that's, again, probably under-experienced by most people. And if, you know, if we just stick with, since we started and, and you also went there, stick with Ethiopia, I mean, it's, it, it, you go and you meet mothers uh, who uh, will do anything to keep their children alive, sacrifice tremendous amount. And, you know, and when given the chance, when there's a little peace, when there's a little stability, uh, will will thrive beyond, uh, you know, because of the tremendous drive and hard work and perseverance. So there, there are common themes that cross borders and cultures and, and uh, continents that make stories uh, very familiar. 
to uh to the to the listener once you bring those people there and show them that now nah, we're not all that different actually mm. and the surprises on the ground john as well i mean the, the famine is not always a dusty desert there's you know i remember seeing crops that hadn't fully grown they look green they look healthy but they weren't going to help anybody and things like the coffee being in Ethiopia, as I'm sure you remember, it's just the, the best coffee anywhere in the world, right? And Addis Ababa. So it's those things that you can only really get a sense of when you go. And ha- having been there, and you mentioned opening other doors, is that what led to your interest in the continent as a whole and wanting to get involved in other countries like Burundi and Sudan and the DRC? Yeah, so it, it really was um, what led me in the, in the first place was, you know, just what do we do about famine? What do we do about war? And uh, as I uh, learned about and spent time in other war zones, I sort of became a person who became, you know, was brought into a particular place to evaluate uh, aid programs that were occurring in crisis situations, in conflict situations. So I was spending much of my 20s and 30s in war zones and uh, and then went in and became a peacemaker but yeah so it really was seeing uh things firsthand uh and uh and going from one place to another and realizing some of the common threads and common roots of conflict and crisis uh that that led me sort of to where i am now um as we sort of realize that there are there are predictable aspects of these situations that that can be addressed if we have the political will to do so. Mm. What was it like for a white American turning up and trying to get involved in sorting out peace in these places? Did that make it more difficult or did that in in some ways make it easier perhaps? I think things have really changed in the last 20 years. Um, When I look back to the 80s and 90s, uh, you know, our the U.S. and I was a diplomat for a while doing peace processes. You know, uh, we were really welcomed uh, in in many places to play a constructive role in peace negotiations, and that has declined quite considerably. Um, there's a real assertion, understandably, in Africa of wanting to have those solutions be homegrown. Uh, in Africa. And um, so the idea that the United States would lead a peace process like we did back in the 90s, which I was part of different peace processes in Africa, that wouldn't happen today. Um, uh, we, the U.S. sort of stays back in the background with the U.K., with other countries, that uh, the U- U- European Union and, and others who, even China sometimes, who, when they have an interest in a, in a, in a peace process, and, and support from the bleacher seats, but it's not the negotiators that, that so it has changed a lot. And, and you, you know, I've changed my role quite dramatically in, in the course of the last 20 years. And we kept asking for years, you know, and George, including my partner and I spent so much time on the ground in Africa, like, what is our, what is our role? How do you see our role is to asking so many different people in refugee camps and war zones, all the way to leaders. And, the, the, the answer just kept coming back. You know, we can handle the situation on the ground uh, and it's our role to do that. But what you can do is you have all the continent of Africa is being looted of its riches. 
you know, it is such a fabulously wealthy continent with minerals and oil and diamonds and gold and all of the, the natural resources that help power our industries and our electronics, the things that everybody's watching today are, you know, have pieces of many African countries in them and they don't even know it. Why would they know it? And so they, we just kept hearing back, do something about the looters, do something about the, the, the tremendous unfairness of the, you know, we send the, the European Union and the United States and other countries around the world send billions of dollars a year into Africa for humanitarian assistance and development and peacekeeping. And at the same time, billions of dollars are flying out of the continent in all kinds of illicit schemes where stolen through dramatic corruption and you know the natural resources just being stripped away and we uh you know they said do something about that go after those people we can't do anything about that so you go do something about that and so that george and i heard the message loud and clear over the years you know and and we've now focused on the big looters of the african continent who is and it's it's Africans in league with international banks, with international mining companies, arms dealers, all kinds of profiteers. Uh, and that's the, that's the kind of uh, work that we've sort of come to uh, after all of this. And I'll come on to the, the century in a moment because it's a, it's a fascinating idea and, and I dare say quite a difficult one, but we'll, we'll come to that in a second. I guess what I'd sort of like to focus on before we do is is how things have changed and how you maintain, as you say, perhaps in the 80s, the US could lead on change, whereas now, quite rightly, the lead needs to be local and perhaps supported from the bleacher seats. When things are changing like that, how do you then maintain your focus on improving human rights, maintain that that passion, I suppose, over the years to, to try and affect positive change? Well, I, I think the great thing about sort of the growth, the, the astronomical growth of, of civil society and then its ability, international civil society, and its ability to connect uh, via all of the new communications tools uh, all over the world. So the folks on the ground, you know, in Ethiopia, just to keep going, you know, can be connected to uh, people all over the world that have a like-minded interest in, you know, whatever the uh, objective is, uh, whether it's peace or, or human rights or environmental restoration or whatever whatever topic is, is of concern to folks. And so having that phenomenon uh, over time uh, really take off, it really gives us a chance to, to say, okay, well, let's divide the, 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 the responsibilities much more clearly. Like, you know, tell us how we can be most helpful and be very, and, and we're, you know, we try to be really, I try to be really humble about it. I, I often don't know. I mean, these are just like in my own country in the United States, we're so divided right now. And it's just, you know, can I sit here and explain to you what's going on sometimes, you know, in our own polity? No, I, I, I'm frankly stunned by it. So how am I going to know exactly what ought to happen in Ethiopia? We, I shouldn't be the person we, we need to take our direction from folks on the ground who are working it every day and risking their lives to make a difference and make a change. So we find through those communication in the civil society movements, how can we 
be most useful? How can we be most helpful? And that, and that evolves all the time. So there's just no, it's never dull. It's never predictable. It's never static. You know, you always have to be on your toes and asking the questions and, uh, and, 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 and not presuming that there is a, 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 a manufacturer, an answer that was prepackaged because it, every situation is different and it's constantly evolving. Uh, what, what about the approaches to activism, John? I mean, you know, you, you've got peaceful activism, soft power affecting policy change at one end and at the other, you've probably got direct action. And we're seeing that in the UK in the past few days. And we've got activists stopping motorways from running because they, you know, they're angry about the effects on the, on the climate, for example. Has your approach to that changed? Was, was there a time when direct action, getting involved, you know, protesting, was more your thing or have you maintained quite a steady approach to it? No, I, it, it veers back and forth. You know, there, there are times and it's all very subjective. You know, there are times when you make the assessment that indeed people aren't listening in power and we're going to raise the temperature. Um, and um, I've got arrested a number of times for various civil disobedience actions and things like that. So um, you know, and, and there are many other, as, you know, uh, aspects or sort of manifestations of, of that kind of activity that uh, raises the uh, stakes and raises the temperature on the uh, on policymakers and leaders to do something and to listen and to, to pay attention to whatever the cause or whatever the issue is. So I've, I've gone back and forth a lot, you know, and uh, but in the case of the work now, like you know, I thought we were going to have to be out protesting in front of banks and telling, you know, tell, because these, you know, thieves are, you know, in league with uh, uh, some of our biggest. But it turned out that, 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 you know, they've been very, very responsive and willing to say, oh, OK, well, we didn't know we were doing this or maybe they did and they're claiming they didn't. But we'll do something about it now. You brought it to our attention. And so, you know, I, I, it really requires it's again, none of this stuff is predictable it's not a there's no mcdonald's sort of version of activism there's just so many different uh manifestations and so you just have to be analyzing the circumstances what would make the biggest difference how do you get attention how do you and attention isn't always the thing that you need you know some politicians some policymakers are not moved by the media they're not moved by activists they're moved by Maybe uh, the church that they go to. Maybe they're moved by uh, uh, things that they uh, see. Maybe they move, they're moved by strong arguments. Maybe they're moved by their friends who are, you know, the, the influential people in the districts that they represent. All kind. You just have to assess constantly. How can I make the biggest impact? How can I make the biggest difference? And you do that, of course, with your allies, and you and you try to make the best uh, decisions about how to proceed. How did the idea for Century in particular come about and also doing it with uh, George Clooney and others who you've mentioned? Yeah, so George, um, you know, we, we've been doing stuff together for many, many years. And um, uh, and we, we are our previous the, the uh, sort of manifestation of our work was uh, we had these satellites and they were focused in on some of these war zones and trying to, you know, demonstrate to the world that these terrible atrocities were happening that were, you know, the governments of these countries were completely denying any involvement in, and we were, you know, 
catching them red-handed and gathering evidence and turning you know to the media and to the united nations and anyone who would listen and we learned over time that you know that shaming approach you know where you name and shame a, a perpetrator of a particular human rights violation if they if there was no action that followed the uh, 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 sort of the witnessing then the, 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 the perpetrators figured out they don't really have to pay attention to us. They don't really have to be worry about what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And over time, you know, we were getting a lot of attention for what we were doing, uh, but we, we agreed, we just uh, assessed that indeed, this was not what was motivating. Uh, this was not a core motivation. It's like the, the, the uh, uh, reputational risk of a warlord or of a dictator. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we we made the fundamental assessment that indeed it, it was the money uh, that that you know it, behind every massive human rights abuse I've ever seen behind every war there's these violence is so profitable and there's almost no consequence there's almost no accountability uh, throughout history for the use of extreme violence to maintain. Uh, power in order to exploit financially, or economically, whatever the circumstances are. And so we decided, you know, this, this is really the core agenda here for our involvement. And we got to go after those profiteers. We got to go, we got to change the calculation so that it isn't more, war is not so profitable. So, so peace can become more profitable than war. So democracy, or, or at least popular representation can be, uh, 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 can have a chance uh, against dictatorship, um, which is again, just the, the most profitable way to, do, to, 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 to run a country if you're trying to steal everything that's there. So that, that's what we, so for the last five years, we've um, hired a bunch of financial forensic investigators, investigative journalists and others who just go after the money of these, follow the money, they go after it and see what's, we, where it is. We turn the evidence over to banks, we turn it over to governments, and we try to get the, since we can't haul most of these guys into court, it's all guys, by the way, since we can't haul them into court, uh, uh, because the legal process takes so long, not to not do it, but other groups do that. We said, well, in the meantime, we can really get them where they where it counts, we can get them in their wallet. And, uh, and that's what we've been doing. What I do want to ask, though, is in this time of cryptocurrency and the trails being more difficult to follow and and uh, and the dark web as well it must be very hard perhaps even harder than ever for your teams to follow those trails and see where the money comes from to fund these uh, these nasty deeds yeah so the, the 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 criminal activity international criminal activity is constantly innovating you know and uh, those that are trying to stop that, those financial crimes are constantly having to innovate the defensive strategies. And so uh, I'm no expert, but we have people who have worked in various intelligence agencies and in all kinds of different backgrounds that know and understand where these fields are evolving, particularly with respect to uh, cryptocurrencies. And, uh, and so I, you know, I think they're always a little bit ahead of us, you know, and, and there'll be times when we're 
you know, dazed and confused about how all this stuff is going on and we're missing it. But uh, the, 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 um, the minds that are being put to uh, figuring out how to combat and counter this nefarious activity uh, are, are quite impressive. And, I, and I'm, so I'm up till now, I've seen answers for almost every challenge that has unfolded in the sort of, it's the bigger problem is not the technology or the difficulty of following money. The biggest problem is political will is so many times people who are the biggest thieves are protected because of geopolitical alliances or whatever the reason. And we're un, unwilling to go after that, uh, to, to go after those folks. So it's really just generating that political will, which goes back to activism and, you know, shining the spotlight and getting people engaged and figuring out that, you know, we, there's a real reason why this these folks need to ha- pay a price for the horrors that they are perpetrating. And, and just to finish off, John, just as a, as a final thought, we talked earlier about you were surprised at how some of the financial institutions reacted to hearing about this kind of thing, perhaps the desire to be more transparent, to affect more positive change. Does that give you hope that the, the net is closing in on these bad actors and it's going to become harder and harder for them to fund, uh, fund the things that are wrong in the world? Yeah, you know, unlike warlords and unlike dictators, banks actually do care about the reputations and don't want to be perceived to be in league with massive human rights abuses, genocide, war crimes. They want to, you know, expunge finances that illicit financial flows that emerge from those kinds of situations out of their systems. And if we can provide the evidence, they're going to take action. So that's very, very hopeful. And I did not know that would be so easy. And I don't mean it, you know, we, there hasn't been a lot of work involved, but we're knocking on open doors. Many of these banks set up task forces after we meet with them to focus and take the evidence that we provide and then and dig deeper and find out, you know, where in fact has their uh, bank or their correspondent banks, their associated banks throughout the world where they may have um, uh, leakages uh, for this, for these, for these illicit financial flows. It's just a matter of, you know, we're a little group and there are others out there, you know, Global Witness and others that are doing this kind of work. And, uh, you know, we just need more of it. We need to do more and, and there needs to be more uh, evidence gathering to go after uh, these, these actors. Because I think the banks are an ally, not, a, not, a, not an obstacle to, uh, to uh, the long-term reform of the system.